We are just beginning the second half of our love series. This is an eight-week series. We've done four. Today is week number five. We are, uh, as we follow Jesus as his apprentices, we're wondering what it's like to follow him when it comes to our identity, sexuality, and gender. We're asking some really big questions about what it means to, to, to be faithful to, to the one who loves us and died for us and gives us life. So welcome here. Uh, welcome to the series. Dr. Brad Harper is professor of Bible uh, and theology at Multnomah University in Portland. Uh, Dr. Harper is the director of the Masters of Arts in Theological Studies program and the assistant dean of the School of Theological Studies. Uh, Dr. Harper is married to Robin and has three grown children. He'll tell you more about them in a minute. He has co-written a book with his eldest son, uh, Drew Harper, entitled Space at the Table, Conversations Between an Evangelical Theologian and His Gay Son. Today, Dr. Harper will be preaching on the importance of love in the church, specifically how we as followers of Jesus are called to love our gay neighbors. And so it's my joy to welcome Dr. Harper to you all. And so can we welcome him up here today? So, Dr. Harper is sharing four times today, and this is his third time, so we'll pray for strength for you, you, peace for you, and, uh, and I just want to say, um, some of us on the team uh, here at the church had an opportunity to read Space at the Table, and uh, his book, um, Withdrew, it was just powerful, and uh, I was really moved emotionally as I saw just really the love of Jesus displayed in this book, so I'm really excited about today. Let's pray. Holy God, I thank you so much uh, for, for our friend, Dr. Harper, and thank you for um, what you've already been doing, Holy Spirit. You've already been drawing us to yourself, and you've already been pouring the love of God upon us, and we thank you. We thank you that you're at work, you're moving in the room, and we would ask that um, as we continue on in worship here, as we listen to um, your truth, as we listen to your heart, God, that you would bless Dr. Harper as he speaks. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. Fill him with wisdom, um, with peace, Lord, as he shares. We just thank you for this opportunity. Draw us closer to yourself, God. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matthew. Well, thank you. It's good to be here uh, this morning. Uh, It's an amazing thing. You know, I come here to this new country, and I don't speak Canadian, but you all understand me. So uh, Matthew introduced me uh, this morning, talked a little bit about what I do, which is often what we do when we introduce ourselves. What do you do? And that kind of introduces uh, who we are. I'd like to have them put the picture of my family uh, up here. Because for me, um, to tell you who I am uh, is really to begin with relationships. I mean, what I do is important, but my life is really about relationships. I've told my kids since they were little that relationships are the only thing that really matters in life. So these are the people who really define who I am. Um, I'm a son, I'm a a brother, I'm a husband, and I'm a father. So uh, this is my family here. Over on the left is my youngest. That's Corey. Corey is 25. He was our crazy X Games kid, skateboarder, snowboarder, jumping off buildings kid. Uh, Corey broke 10 bones before he was out of high school. And I have the x-rays on my phone to prove it. Um, it he was just a crazy guy. Um, Corey is a singer-songwriter, uh, lives in L.A., uh, opened for Justin Bieber a couple years ago on his Purpose Tour. It was open for Niall Horan last year. That's the world uh, he lives in. 
Um, I would encourage you to all go home, go on Spotify, go to Corey Harper, and just, whether you like his music or not, just put it on constant stream. Because for every stream, I think he gets eight one-hundredths of a penny. And so, like, this congregation can pay his rent for all of next month, right, just by, just by putting it on there. So, uh, so that would be great. So uh, there's me next to him, and then uh, next to me is my wife, Robin. Uh, Robin and I have been married for 35 years. Uh, she's my best friend. Um, she's a teacher. She teaches elementary and uh, junior high school age kids. She's a reading specialist. And a lot of what she does is teach kids who are performing under grade level in reading and writing. And uh, she really is my hero. She saves their lives. She gets them to be able to get back up to grade level in reading and writing again, which is very helpful for them uh, in their lives. Um, next to Robin is my daughter, Bregan. Bregan is 28. She is my feisty, red-headed feminist. Um, she's very independent, don't mess with her. Um, she's also my only daughter, so she's my baby girl. When the kids were growing up, the boys would often say to me, Dad, you give Bregan whatever she wants. And my response to them was usually, yeah, what's your point? <laughs> she's my only girl, right? She's a gem. I just love being with her. And uh, she works for a company, a fast-growing company in San Francisco called Instacart, uh, an app on your phone that you order groceries and they bring them to your house. She manages their onboarding of new employees. And then to the far right, uh, that's my oldest. That's Drew. Uh, Drew is, will be 31 tomorrow. Uh, Drew is an amazingly talented guy. He's, he's truly one of the smartest, most talented guys I've, I've ever known. Um, he's an actor, he's a writer, uh, he's a singer, uh, he's an amazing writer, and um, if, if you read Space at the Table, uh, you'll see that. Uh, I was telling the publisher a few years ago how much better a writer Drew is than me, and he said, Brad, he said, you're a really good writer. He said, Drew? Drew writes beautifully, and he does, and if you read the book, you will laugh, you will cry. Um, he's just an incredibly talented guy. So this is my family, and these are the people that define me. Um, so I'm going to talk today a little bit about what it looks like for us to love our LGBTQ neighbors. When I talk to you this morning, the experience I'm going to be sharing with you in terms of the evangelical church really comes out of the context of the American evangelical church as, as it lives and breathes in the United States. Okay, so some of that will be different for what the church is like here in Canada, but there will be some crossover, uh, I'm sure. But so you just kind of need to make those translations. I want you to think with me for a moment about your understanding and your relationship with LGBTQ people. So how many of you, by show of hands, know someone who's either gay or lesbian or transgender? And, and most of your hands go up. Uh, which is the way it always is these days. If I had asked that congregation, uh, that question to a congregation 30 years ago, it would have been very different. Very few people would have raised their hands. Um, uh, the culture has changed a lot. Um, we're in a culture now where, where gay and lesbian uh, people can, can be a little bit more open about who they are, which I think is a great thing. Um, then I also wanted you, want you to think, especially those of you who are baby boomers, like me, who are part of my generation, and if you grew up in the church in the 1960s and 1970s like I did, 
Um, how did you grow up thinking about gay people? Um, what were your perceptions of them? Was it issues of confusion, suspicion, concern? And what are your impressions about how we Christians, especially those of you who are part of my generation, how we responded and have responded to the LGBTQ community? Um, that's often not very positive. And, and I grew up with the words would have been sin and perversion and rebellious choice and many other things uh, in that same line. And I will tell you that in my life growing up in the evangelical church in the U.S., I've found that kind of the default response of evangelical Christians to gay and lesbian people is one of shame, that you, you should be ashamed uh, of how you're living your life. And yet, if there are people who are LGBTQ people, perhaps those who haven't grown up in the church, who perhaps are interested in exploring um, faith, learning about God, learning about Jesus, perhaps it, it might be that they would think that, well, I, I should go to a church. And yet, because of the consciousness, their consciousness of how Christians have often responded to LGBTQ people, they're very concerned about that. And if they were to come into a place where they were told in so many ways that they should be ashamed of, of how they live, how can a person per pursue a relationship with God when they are overwhelmed by shame? Shame alienates us. Shame alienates us, not just from God, but from other people. And it's not the way God engages us. Before I move on to talk a little bit about, about relationships and building bridges, I want to tell you just a little bit about my own understanding biblically about marriage. Um, as a, a longtime pastor and a theologian for the last 20 years, I, I want you to know where I'm coming from, and, and that is that from my study in the scriptures, uh, it, it's pretty clear to me that the Bible says that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. Um, nowhere does the Bible consider it any other way. For me as a theologian, a, a theolo theological perspective on this for me is that in the Genesis passages about God creating humans in his image, these passages are about him creating us male and female. And the human, the image of God is really fully reflected when a man and a woman come together. These passages are in the context of God bringing a man and a woman together in marriage and sexual oneness. Two beings who are both the same, they're human, and yet fundamentally different as male and female. And I believe this is a reflection of the biblical doctrine of God as Trinitarian, of our God as triune, three persons in one being. The persons of the Trinity are both like and unlike each other in fundamental ways. And I think this is at the core uh, of God bringing a man and a woman together in marriage. The biblical arguments are there, and you have heard Pastor Matthew talk on these passages over the last couple of weeks, Genesis 2, Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans 1 and others. And so I would say to you that I think this issue is fairly clear to me. Um, my, my view of what the Bible says about, about sex and marriage is, is very similar to that uh, of Pastor Matthew. But what I want to do now is I just want to set that aside. And the reason I want to do that is because in, for most of my life growing up in that 
historic, traditional, evangelical Christian church, what we've done, if we've ever talked about this subject, about homosexuality, a uh, pastor would give, get up, do a message, read through all the clobber passages about homosexuality, say, see, there it is, God says this is wrong, God says this is sin, now we're done, next topic. And this is deeply problematic for us as learners and for the church's engagement with the world. Because, you see, the same Bible that, if indeed that is what it teaches about marriage and about sexuality, there's something else that the same Bible says far more intensely and far more often than all of that. And Jesus expresses this when the church, the, the, the Jewish leaders ask him, what's the greatest command in the law? And Jesus says, the greatest command is to love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is very much like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This, Jesus says, summarizes the whole of what God tells us to do. This is it, love of God and neighbor. And the Bible does not allow us the choice to determine which neighbors we're going to love and which neighbors we're not going to love. And so embedded in that is this reality that God calls upon us as followers of Jesus to love our LGBTQ neighbors and to care for them and express Christ to them. So I want to talk to you a little bit about doing that. And to start, I want to tell you just a little bit about my son, Drew. You see, the reason I show you those pictures and the reason I tell you this story is because while I'm an academic, and that this issue is an academic for me, academic issue for me. It's not only academic. This issue is very personal for me. It's about my son, who I love, and for whom I would give my life. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Drew. From age two, Drew was drawn to beauty, to beautiful things. Uh, when he was a little boy, a two-year-old, I was a pastor of a church in the Midwest in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, back in the early 1990s, we all dressed up to go to church back then, you know, which we don't anymore. But women would dress and they would wear these beautiful, you know, shoes, dress shoes. And when Drew was two, he would literally walk into the lobby of the church and bend down and touch women's shoes because they were beautiful made of all kinds of different colors and fabrics with sparkles on them and all of that. He was fascinated by them. He never touched my shoes, right? They just, they weren't interesting to him. When Drew was growing up as a four and five and six and seven-year-old, like oh, most little kids do, you know, they dress up in mommy and daddy's clothes. Drew didn't dress up in my, my clothes. He rest, dressed up in Robin's clothes. Why? Because they're more beautiful, Women's clothing has, tends to have more color and fabric and textures and sparkles and all of this type of stuff. And Lou thought, Drew thought that was beautiful. This didn't have anything to do with sexuality. It was just about his attraction to things that were beautiful. His natural interests were art and writing poetry as a little boy. He wrote plays when he was in the third grade. Uh, when he was eight, he would memorize Shakespearean sonnets before dinner and then, and then recite them to us at the table. He loved singing and axing, acting. When he was eight years old, I took him to see his first opera, and he was transfixed. He loved it. When he was eight years old, he began something in our neighborhood that was, began to be called for three years the first, second, and third annual Broadway musical review. And he would invite in the summer, all the kids from the neighborhood would come over to our house for a week, and Drew would teach them songs from Broadway musicals. He would teach them choreography, they would do the dance steps, and then they would make costumes. And on Friday night, they'd invite all the parents over, and these kids would do a Broadway musical review. What eight-year-old does that? 
That's, that was my eight-year-old. That, that, was, that was his life. That's what, that's what was beautiful to him. He had no interest in sports or guns or frying bugs on the sidewalk with a magnifying glass or blowing things up. He just had no interest in it. We did actually have him play t-ball one time. You know, the t-ball is where you set the ball on the thing and you hit it, you know. Ah, baseball, it's a sport. You know, maybe you'll like this. It's a team sport. You know, I think he was five or six years old. And he actually did like it, not because he liked the game. He couldn't care less about that because he would be standing in right field talking to the moms on the sideline about what materials they were using for their latest redecorating project, you know. Just, this is him, this, this is how he was. In elementary school, his socialization became difficult because Drew was more comfortable with girls. Because the stuff he liked doing was often the stuff that kind of society said, these are girl things, right? And he just wasn't interested in the guy things. And I remember at age five, he came into the house one afternoon and threw himself on one of the chairs, weeping and saying, Daddy, why didn't God make me a girl? He felt so much more like them than boys. And he was crucified by his male peers because he wasn't like them. And he didn't like the stuff most of them liked. And at school, because of that, he really wasn't welcome playing with the boys. He really wasn't welcome playing with the girls because he wasn't a girl. And so often Drew would, at recess, wander the playground by himself alone. And by the time he was in third grade, um, his teachers showed us a suicide note that he had written in his work. He was very, very depressed. In fifth grade, we moved to a new city, which was interesting for Drew. He'd become very fearful of owning his own identity because it was so often rejected. So in fifth grade, we moved to a new city. Nobody knew him. So as he started the public school in this new city, uh, he, um, the very first day, went to class and in his best Sean Connery accent, told everyone that he was a prince descended from Scottish royalty from islands off the New Hebrides. <laughs> and he would tell them about castle intrigue and arranged marriages and all of these types of things and he stayed in character all day and he pulled it off for three months. We had no idea he was doing this. No idea this was going on. And then all of a sudden the kids found out that it wasn't true and, and they were very upset with him. And so it created a ruckus and the school counselor called me in and he said, Brad, why would, why would he do this? And I said, well, if you had spent your life so far being rejected by your peers just for who you were, maybe you would want to try to choose a different identity too, something that you think people would like. By the end of seventh grade, he told us about his awareness of his attraction to boys and had had his first sexual experience. He went to uh, what in the U.S. is called ex-gay counseling, um, he was very submissive and went and wanted to deal with this issue of his sexuality in a Christian way and find victory in Christ over this issue. We, we spoke constantly about God's grace and, and went on walks, long walks, talking about it. When he got into high school, he desperately wanted to be accepted by other boys in the youth group. And, and you got to remember, Drew was born in 1991, and so this was in the early 2000s. And, and it's, it's a little bit different now, thankfully, but, but in, e even in, you know, progressive Portland area uh, 
evangelical Christian youth groups, Drew knew that he could not own who he was. He could not be honest about who he was. I remember one time as a, when he was a sophomore in high school, he sat on the couch with me just sobbing, saying, Dad, I could never tell the boys at church what I struggle with because if I did, they would be gone. And I need friends. He went to more therapy and more counseling, perhaps mostly to please me, and it was a negative, very negative experience for him. And he began to become angry, angry with the church, angry with me. And his break with Christianity began. So when he was a senior in high school, he came into our room one Sunday afternoon and said, Mom and Dad, I'm done. I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the church. I'm gay. That's how I'm going to live my life. Get over it. And yet it would be difficult to imagine a father and son closer than Drew and I have been since he was a little boy. So for me, while I believe that my son's sexual life is different from what God calls us to, the choice of whether or not to love him is not a question for me. He knows what I believe about God and what I think God says about sex. The fact that I love him and wholly accept him fully as my gay son does not change that. He doesn't make him think that, oh, Dad, you're starting to agree with me now. No. I love him because he's my son. So I want to talk to you a little bit about what the LGBTQ community thinks about us <clears throat> as the church. A study was done a few years ago in America and the U.S. It's a research project on 16 to 29-year-old non-Christians who were straight. They were not gay. So under 30, um, and asked them their views of Christianity. When they were asked, non-Christian young people, their views of Christianity, their impressions, their number one response was, Christians are anti-gay. So number one response. 91% said this. It's wonderful, isn't it? So Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you don't like gay people. Right? It's pretty de depressing. And so, if LGBTQ people who haven't grown up in the church, they don't know Christ, they're thinking about investing in getting a relationship with Jesus, where are they going to go except a church? And yet these gay people have questions uh, about this, about can they actually even go to a church? And a number of the questions that I share here are questions that are actually asked by gay people. You'll find them in Andrew Marin's book, uh, Love is an Orientation, which is an excellent book. Questions like, how can I possibly relate to Christians in a church environment? Um, can I even, is there any way I can be welcomed there? Will Christians always look at me as just gay, right? When they see me, is there just going to be a big G on my chest, a big L, a big T on my chest? Is that how they're going to think of me? Do Christians think about homosexuality as a special sin? The answer is, yep, we do. We put it up at the top of the pile as if it's one of the worst things that people could ever do. Do they believe that I chose to be like this? A lot of Christians of my generation do. Think that being gay is just a choice. It's a, it's a perverted choice that people make. Do they think that I'm going to sexually abuse their children? The answer to that for many people, Christians, especially in my generation, is yep, they do. 
Often, Christians in my generation will look at somebody who's gay and think, this person must also be a child molester, when in fact those two realities are completely separated from one another and have no necessary connection at all. Your children could not be safer with anybody than they would be with my son, Drew. In fact, when my son, Drew, was a high schooler and was babysitting, he would go to spend time with kids, and when the parents would come back, the kids would say, we want him. He's the funniest. He's the best. He reads the best stories because he reads all the stories with the actual voices of the characters in the story. And yet this is how we think of them. These are questions asked by LGBTQ persons who are not yet part of the Christian community, but perhaps interested. So I want to talk about a Christian response to the gay and lesbian community. First of all, the response needs to be Trinitarian. In other words, it needs to be relational. We worship a triune God who, for him, everything is about relationship, and that's the way he wants it to be for us too. So our primary goal in engaging gay or lesbian persons should not be to get them to agree that homosexuality is wrong. That should not be our primary goal. Our primary goal with anybody who's coming here to investigate a relationship with God through Christ should be that they might know the love of God for them in Christ and that that might be transforming to their lives wherever they are. God does not save us by beginning with judgment. He doesn't save us by pointing at our lives and saying, hey, you got to change that before you can start investigating having a relationship with me. No. He takes us where we are. God begins with love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Our response needs to be relational. Our response also needs to be incarnational. Incarnational. God engages us by becoming one of us in the incarnation as God takes on our humanity in Jesus Christ. He takes on our brokenness by which he understands what it's like to be us. He knows our pain and he responds in compassion. Isaiah 53 says of the the future Messiah, the Savior, he was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." This is God's incarnational act of engaging us in love. So I want to ask, what would it look like for us to engage the LGBT community on the basis of this relational, incarnational approach? What are ways that we can respond? Let me mention just a few. First of all, we need to apologize. We simply need to apologize to the LGBTQ community for how we, as Christians, have treated them. In the United States, there's a group of people that I don't like to think about, and yet they're very prominent in the, in the American mind. It's a group called the Westboro Baptist Church. Perhaps some of you have heard of them. 
They're a, a, a church of people uh, out of Kansas who travel around the country going to funerals of gay people carrying signs that say, God hates fags. Fags are going to burn in hell. They go to conferences, meetings, where LGBTQ people have meetings, carrying their signs, yelling and screaming, you're all going to hell, God hates you, God damns you. I've been at these meetings, I've seen these people. And they do this all saying that they are representatives of Jesus Christ. And so when I say we need to apologize, you know, most of us are going to respond and say, but wait a minute, I've never said those kinds of things. I've never carried a sign like that. I've never said anything evil like that to gay people. True enough, but you need to understand, you especially understand from that survey I read to you earlier, when the LGBT community that's outside the church thinks about Christians, often Westboro Baptist Church is kind of the imagery they have of us, that that's how we think of them. And it's painful to them. So whether or not we've ever done that, people who identify as us have done that. I'll tell you a story that illustrates why this matters. So when Drew and I were getting ready to write space at the table, I said, I want you to meet this guy I know. He's a book publisher. He's a Christian, because we were looking at secular publisher houses too, publishing houses. And also he happens to be a member of the board of directors of Multnomah University. And Drew's rolling his eyes going, great. You know, some conservative Christian. I said, just... Just meet him and, and, and hear him out. So we went to a pub in Portland and met him and his son, who was an editor. And we sat down, and they had never met Drew. I had to introduce them to Drew. And, and after introducing each other, um, the publisher, Don, he, he said to Drew, Drew, I just need to tell you um, that I want to apologize. I want to apologize for how my community, the Evangelical Christian Church, has treated you and people like you. We have said awful things. We have done awful things. And I'm really, really sorry about that. Would you please forgive me? It's like the air was sucked out of the room. And we went on for two hours and talked about this book and what we could do and perhaps how it could help people. And as we're walking back to the car, Drew just goes, we're going with him. I trust him. That's why we do that. Because it clears away all the crap in front of us, even if it hasn't been ours. So we just own it and apologize for it and ask forgiveness. It breaks down barriers. Second, we need to listen to their stories. When people come out to you and tell you that they're gay or lesbian or transgender or queer or gender fluid or whatever, I encourage you that your response should be something like, huh, that's interesting. Tell me your story. I'd love to hear your story. And they will tell you. And they will tell you stories of pain and stories of rejection and suffering, sometimes at the hands of the church. And we need to hear these stories. And the fact that we just sit and listen to their stories and affirm their pain is, is not saying to them, I agree with your view of sexuality or anything else like that. It's just saying, I care about you and I want to understand you and I want to know what you've been through. Listen to their stories. Third, learn to separate orientation or attraction from behavior. Learn to separate attraction from behavior in your own minds. As a theologian, I'm convinced that same-sex attraction is not a sin. It's no different than anything else we're attracted to that God says no to. 
right? It's not the attraction that's a sin. If a heterosexual person who's married walks down the street and suddenly feels a sense of attraction to somebody who's not his spouse or uh, not his or her spouse, is that a sin? No. It could become that depending on what you do with it. If you nurture it emotionally, if you act on it sexually, it can, but the attraction is not a sin issue. The Bible calls that temptation, not sin. The person who's tempted to spread damaging rumors about people, that's called slander and is in the same list as homosexuality, right? If a person is tempted to do that, but out of love for Christ says, no, I'm not going to do that. Have they sinned because they were attracted to it? No, no, they haven't sinned because they've said, I'm going to follow Jesus on this one. Also, we need to get beyond the idea that attraction is simply a perverted choice that people make. Listen, middle school boys don't sit on the curb waiting for the bus one morning and think, okay, today's the day I'm going to decide. Heterosexual, homosexual, heterosexual, homosexual. They don't do that. People who experience same-sex attraction just discover those attractions in the same way that everybody else does, the same way as straight people. The separation of attraction from behavior is important because often LGBTQ people have come into the church and the church has said, you need to lose that attraction before you can start following Jesus. We must not do that. The attraction's not a sin. And you know what? You don't choose your attractions. You can't change your attractions. How many of you like pizza? Okay, you, like, you all like pizza, right? So if I were to stand up here today and say, you need to stop liking pizza. Like, how stupid is that, right? I can't tell you to stop liking pizza. That's ridiculous. I can tell you to stop eating it, right? Maybe I'm your doctor and realize this is really bad for you. Stop eat- I can tell you to stop eating it. I can't tell you to stop being attracted to it because you can't change that. It's not something you choose. If we don't do this separation, otherwise what we will do is tell them, you've got to leave the church until you lose your same-sex attraction, which is just unthinkable. So we need to separate attraction from behavior, but I also want to tell you, and this is important, this does not work in the, in the gay community, the separation of attraction from behavior, and so I encourage you not to engage them in this way. Sexual behavior is a huge issue in the gay identity because it's the behavior that they fought for, not their attraction. In 1969, there was a raid on the Stonewall Inn in New York City, and uh, it, was, it, it was at this time that the gay community finally banded together to resist police shakedowns and extortion after this raid, which was a known hangout for gays and lesbians. The origin of the gay pride parade in America and around the world commemorates this uprising at the Stonewall Inn. Before Stonewall in many cities around the U.S., uh, a person could be fined and get jail time or be placed in a mental institution without a hearing for any of the following acts. Two people of the same sex holding hands or kissing. Two people of the same sex dancing with one another. Bars that served alcohol to gay people could be shut down. Publicly declaring oneself to be gay could get you thrown in jail. So for, for gay and lesbian people, same-sex behavior is a major factor that sets them apart from other people. Thus, when their behavior is challenged, 
to them, they believe their entire identity is challenged. Now, we may not agree with this. We may say, I'm not challenging your identity, but you have to understand that's the way they're going to see it. And so this phrase that Christians have sometime, love the sinner, hate the sin, you can't use that in this situation. For a gay and lesbian person to say that you hate their, their activity is to hate them. So we simply need to be aware of that. Fourth, we need to move beyond the cause issue. We need to move beyond the cause issue. Do we really need to know for sure what the causes of homosexuality are? The science is all over the map on this. There are many issues that, that scientists look at in terms of what might be causes for these things. And yet, it's fascinating in my life as I began to deal with this issue as an adult, I began to realize that evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, do not want it to be genetic. And I wondered about that for a long time. Why don't evangelicals want it to be genetic? They always poo-pooed any science that dealt with genetic stuff on this. And the reason is because if it's genetic, you can't fix it. But if it's the result of having been sexually abused as a child or having a distant father or something like that, hey, we can just send you to counseling and then we can get you fixed and you'll become straight. The reality is, is this simply isn't the way it works. It's frustrating to gay people that if they talk to us about their sexuality, we may just assume that they have been sexually abused or if they're a boy that they grew up with an absent father. In fact, research shows that only 7 to 15 percent of gays and lesbians were abused in their youth. And if you were to tell Drew that, Drew, you must have had an absent father or an emotionally absent father growing up and that's why you're gay, Drew would just laugh. He'd say, there, there's no one, that's no boy that grew up closer to his father than I did with my dad. We need to move beyond the cause issue. Just let it go. Five, we need to move past some of our typical responses and take the conversation to a better level. We need to be careful about entering into debates. If LGBTQ people come to church and they don't know God, they don't have a relationship with Christ, making the first thing we do is start talking to them about being gay and lesbian and telling them that they, they need to change their views on this is not going to lead them to Jesus. It's love that's going to lead them to Jesus. Stay away from the debates. They're not what matters at that point. And we need to get over, and this is true perhaps mostly for people in my generation, we need to get over being disgusted by gay people. Unfortunately, in my experience, in my lifetime, one of the most common reactions from Christians, um, sometimes people who weren't even Christians at all, but surely from Christians to gay people, is that they are disgusting. And when you're talking about someone who's disgusting, you're talking about my boy. And my boy is not disgusting. He's beautiful, and he's sensitive, and he's loving, and he cares for the underdog, and he's funny, and he's a joy to be around. We need to change the way we talk about gay people. They are people loved by God. Next, we need to change the definition of being bold for Christ. Too often for Christians, being bold for Christ means, you know, we need to stand up and condemn people for their sin. For Jesus, being bold was about loving sinners, not condemning them. It was about spending time with them. It was about caring for, him, for them. Jesus loved and spent time with the people that the most Powerful religious leaders said he should, he should condemn, but he would have none of it. 
And that doesn't mean Jesus didn't talk about sin. Jesus didn't back away from talking about sin when it was necessary, but he never led with that. As Pastor Matthew talked to you about in the sermon, in the, the sermon a week or so ago, the, the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, and they drag her before Jesus, and she has sinned. It's a violation of Torah, of the law to do this. And they said, as a good rabbi, you have to address her sin. And he wouldn't do it. And after they'd all left, he said, there's no one here left to condemn you. And I don't condemn you either. That's how he starts. And of course, afterwards, he says, now we've got this issue we need to deal with. But he doesn't lead with that. He leads with love and acceptance and lack of judgment. God does not need us to defend him by condemning gay people. Next, we need to be vulnerable and transparent to our gay friends. We need to let them know about our imperfections, about our struggles, about our weaknesses. And one of the reasons for this is because um, the LGBT community naturally considers Christians as self-righteous. And sometimes they have good reason for that. We need to disabuse them of that notion right away and allow them to know that we have issues in our own lives that we struggle with and we need to deal with those issues before God as well in humility and repentance and commitment to Him. Finally, we need to find the image of God in our gay neighbors. We need to find the image of God in our gay neighbors. God has made every human being in the image of God. And every human being, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, will emanate things from their lives that illustrate who God is because they're made in his image whether they know that or not. I have two friends, Eric and Eugene. Eugene died a few years ago. Eric and Eugene grew up gay in Chicago in the 1940s, in a place and time when you could never, ever talk about being gay. You could never expose that. Eric and Eugene were together for 62 years. And as I watched their lives, I saw Eric and Eugene live out their lives with each other in ways that were beautiful. They cared for each other. They put each other first, decade after decade. Now, that doesn't mean I agreed with them in terms of their view of sexuality and what God thinks about that, but just by being human and caring for each other, they did things that illustrated and emanated the image of God, things that were beautiful, things that I can point to and say, that's good, that's beautiful. We need to find the image of God in our gay neighbors and affirm that they are people of beauty. I'll close with this story. A number of years ago when Drew was acting in, in Portland, he was, um, he was in the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof. You familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, right? Great old musical. And um, he was performing with a, uh, a New York traveling company um, that came through Portland and he had one of the lead roles. Uh, he played uh, Model the Tailor, right? Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, right? You remember this song? It's a great, it's a great role. One of the reviewers said he, um, he, he performed it like Woody Allen, which I thought was a great compliment, a New, New York Jewish, you know, thing going on there, so that was great. But he had um, a friend in the show uh, that he uh, introduced to Robin and me. He was one of the dancers in the show. And, of course, the stereotype is 
that there's lots of gay men in theater, right? The reality is there's lots of gay men in theater, okay? It's just the way it is. So Drew invited this friend over to meet us, and, and we started spending time with him. And, and, and he was not a Christian, was very wary of Christians. And when Drew lived in New York and would invite his parents to come out, his friends were, you know, he'd tell his friends, my dad's a former pastor and an evangelical theologian. They're like, ah, oh, he's going to hate us. You know, and Drew's like, no, 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 it's okay. My parents are different. But this young man was very wary of us. So we just, we just spent time with him. We just loved him. And as the show was coming to an end and he was going to go back to New York, we, we invited them out to breakfast and took them out to breakfast in Portland. And about halfway through breakfast, this young man looked at me and he said, so Brad, tell me, what is it that so captivates you about Jesus? Here's this young man who's alienated from Christianity, thinks Christians hate him, doesn't really know anything about Jesus for who he is, is asking me to share the gospel with him. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want the kind of relationships with people who don't know Jesus that because of our love and acceptance for them, they will ask us and be curious and say, tell us about, tell me about this Jesus you, you know, this Jesus you believe in. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why it matters that we love our LGBTQ neighbors. God of grace, thank you for your love for us. May we today be encouraged by that love to reach out and love our neighbors, all of them, the ones that are like us and the ones who are not. In Jesus' name, amen.